everybody. Welcome to the Rainbow Connection, the podcast where we discuss all things Jim Henson and Muppety. Today is a very special episode, we think, uh, in honor of the upcoming Dark Crystal Age of Resistance series. We are going to be talking about the Dark Crystal. So we are just going to be talking about the main film on this episode. We haven't read any of the expanded comics or novels or anything, although we hope to sooner or later, and we are going to watch the series when it drops. But right now, we're talking the 1982 classic, The Dark Crystal. If you haven't watched The Dark Crystal, we highly recommend that you do before listening to this episode, because we're going to get pretty deep into it, and you should really watch it. You should just watch it. I mean, I don't think the spoilers will ruin it because it's a very basic story, but please watch it. Yes, this is your official spoiler alert. So this isn't a movie I grew up with. Did you really grow up watching this one? I didn't grow up with it. I watched it the first time, I don't know, probably like later in my teens, like towards the end of high school. You see, I'm pretty sure the first time I watched it, we were already dating. I'd seen it at least once before then. Okay. I think. I wish I'd grown up with this movie. Me too. Because this is a spectacular children's fantasy and there is basically nothing else like it on the planet. Besides maybe Labyrinth, which we'll talk about another day. It's which, a really unique film. Labyrinth is the other collaboration between Jim Henson and Brian Froud, who is the conceptual designer on The Dark Crystal, and a hugely integral part of what makes this movie so special. So it is not surprising at all, in the slightest to me, that Dark Crystal is getting all of this attention now, and potential like world-building, cinematic universe-style stuff, because... It is clear so much thought went into every element of this world and its history and a bunch of stuff that does not even get included in this movie. We watched some bonus features. We have a nice Blu-ray of it that's got a bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff shot while Jim was alive. And we got the fantastic opportunity to see this in cinema, in a film reel at the Review Cinema in Toronto, which was just a fabulous experience. Highly recommend it. If you get the opportunity to see this movie in theaters, do it. But every layer of this movie feels like something you could go into on a deeper level, so I'm really not surprised that they're going to it. In doing research for this episode, I discovered just how much of this world they had conceptualized behind the scenes that never makes it into the movie, but nonetheless it gives the movie this sense of texture and richness that, like, beyond the edges of the frame, you're just seeing these tiny pieces of this world that exists elsewhere. They have named and given characteristics to every individual creature that you see moving around in these close-up panning shots across these landscapes. It's incredibly detailed stuff, and I think had you, Nathan, found this when you were a child, you would have become just as obsessed with the whole, like, world-building thing as Lord oh, of the Rings, if you could have gotten your hands on it. Like, like this is Tolkienian in tradition in the same obsessive way that Tolkien created histories and mythologies for the languages and cultures in his books. This has that same level of obsessive detail. Yes, it does and feel I like love there's it. appendices upon appendices some in like someone's closet or something. Well, I mean, there there are in published material, like the world of the Dark Crystal is essentially a... I mean, it's an art book, but it's also like the conceptual history of the project. And it includes like a whole bunch of 
I guess you would say, like, magical, like, zoology about all of the creatures in Thra, which is the world that the Dark Crystal is set in. I'm looking forward to the, the series. Like, the backgrounds of the different, like, species. I'm so looking the, forward the to the history yeah. of this world uh, being put into more narrative form. But I'm also really kind of want to get the, my hands on the world, like, the world of the Dark Crystal and all of the other behind-the-scenes books that there are available for this, because it's just such a deep and interesting, like, mythology they've built. And there's also prequel comics and prequel novels and sequel novels. There's a lot of material on the Dark Crystal that has all come out, like, in the last two years and the build-up to this show, basically. Well, yeah, like, they they were planning on making a sequel movie all the way up until, like, I think it was 2014, where they finally, like, gave up on trying to get it developed, but they took the story material they were going to use for that and turn it into the novel trilogy that uh, I think is what happens after the movie. Like, there's still going yeah. to be more film-ick stuff in yes. the canon, so it's not like a huge loss that we didn't get this sequel, because we're still getting Age of Resistance, which is going to be and it has, amazing. It has a fantastic cast. Oh, it's loaded! It's insane yeah. how... Like, it's not insane, though, because this another element of this movie, we aren't even talking about the plot or anything yet, we're just talking about how great it is conceptually, well, yeah, and we'll, we'll get into stuff later, bit, but we're but... just gonna gush. One of the other great things about this is just how clearly inspiring it must have been to the people who did grow up with it, because it's so unique. It is so weird on so many levels in the best possible ways. And I don't know how you would come across this as an artistic kid and not become obsessed with it. And horrified by it. It is it is terrifying. Oh yes, it is also <laughs> very dark. It would have um, traumatized me as a child, but I also probably would become obsessed with it. Yeah, one of the things that the studio people were worried about when this movie was being produced was that it seemed a little dark for children. Oh, what was the reasoning for that? The time that the potato person gets his soul sucked out of his eyeballs? Because that's probably it, right? Probably. Yeah, that's probably the most disturbing part of the movie. But on that note, let's talk about what the actual bulk of this movie is, what it structurally is as a film, scene by scene, more or less, and talk about, I don't know, the deeper levels on that. Because this movie is very much playing on a very traditional sense of mythology and fairy tale lore, and you can talk a lot about that, I think. So Nathan, Mm -hmm. in the most simple, straightforward, like, pitch, elevator pitch, what is the story of this movie. So The Dark Crystal is a fantasy story set in the world of Thra, which is not named in the movie, but that's what it's called, about a crystal called the Crystal of Truth. And a thousand years ago, during a great convergence of the three suns that orbit the planet, the crystal was split uh, and a shard was removed from the crystal. And at the same time, two new races appeared in Thra. Uh, One of them was these bird-like kind of reptilian creatures called the Skeksis, and the other was this gentle, magical race called the Mystics. In the supplemental stuff, they're called the Uru, but they're not called that in the movie. Important to note here that the Skeksis are assholes and the Mystics are good. (laughs) Uh, There is a a definite, like, good-evil binary established in the movie between these two races. The Skeksis after hearing a prophecy that a Gelfling, which is this elf-like race of small creatures that was once very populous in Thra, uh, that they hear a prophecy that a Gelfling will bring about their destruction, so they genocide the Gelflings, 
and that is all history. But one of the Gelflings survived, and it's uh, this young boy named Jen. And Jen is taken in by the mystics and raised in their gentle, magical ways. And the master mystic on his deathbed tells Jen that he is destined to find a crystal shard and use it to heal the world, basically. So he goes on this journey after his master dies, and he finds the shard of the crystal and learns that this is the missing piece of what they now call the dark crystal, and that it is his destiny to return the shard to the crystal and heal the world in some way, which turns out to be the reunification of the Skeksis and the Mystics into the uh, combined race that they originally were before the crystal was shattered. Aided on this quest, uh, partway through, he meets Kira, who is another Gelfling, because they failed at their genocide twice, uh, who was raised by Podlings, which are these tiny, like, potato people who live underground, and she has been raised in their ways of communing with nature, and she can control animals, but or not control animals, but she can talk to animals, and she has this very strong connection with nature, and uh, they meet about, like, I don't know, a third of the way through his journey, and he befriends her, and they together uh, face the Skeksis and reunite the crystal, more or less. So it's kind of a deuteragonist situation for the most of the movie, even if Jen is strictly speaking the like chosen one. It is very much a hero's journey. It is very Star Warsian, it's very Lord of the Ringsians, it's very Arthurian in a way. It's here is boy raised in specific situation, he is told of tragic past thing, sent out to do quest thing, saves a day, changes the whole world. You know. It's yeah. A very traditional fairy tale structure, which really helps you get past the fact that this movie is really weird. On like for a film, for even for a fantasy film, there are no human beings in this movie. Yes. There aren't human being actors dressed up in costumes. There aren't humans at all. That was one of the big things that they were using to sell this movie was that it was the first movie made like the first live action movie ever made to not feature any actual human beings like on screen. Yeah, which you think, oh, well, animated movies sometimes have no humans, but there is such a distinction between animation and live action that you maybe don't realize until you watch something like this. It is such a physical movie. Everything is there and mm-hmm. you can feel it. And it's not like stop motion where it's there and you can feel it more than traditional animation or CG animation, but there's still the distancing between everything is not quite moving like it would if it were that thing. Everything is moving in real time in the Dark Crystal. Everything is physical and visceral. They built sets. There's some compositing, which isn't great because it's 1982 level compositing, but for the most part, everything is just there and it's mind-blowing, especially on film. Yeah, there's something very awe-inspiring about just seeing these physical things existing and moving in such a lifelike way. And none of it is is from our world. Absolutely nothing. They go out of their way to make the rats different. There aren't fish. <laughs> there aren't birds. Like, nothing is like it is from our world. They put so much effort into making this a completely distinct fantasy world and completely distinct fantasy world from any other fantasy world. Sure, I, I, it is definitely a in the tradition of most fairy tales and legends and whatnot, narratively, but in its world and its mythos and its characters... There's not an orc or an elf to be found. Like, you described the Gelflings and elf-like, but they're also, like, kind of, like, 
rabbits almost like they're not humanoid 100 percent. nothing is you can't really compare it to anything else there isn't mythology taken from anywhere clearly despite all of these very common themes one of the things that apparently attracted jim henson to the work of brian froud is the fact that he very often goes out of his way to make his illustrations things that aren't referencing pre-existing creatures like animals or people like he he goes out of his way to to make things that feel more unique and more alien mm-hmm. so Which the is probably look the most like anything to be placed on earth in that they look kind of like dead birds brought to life but even they have these weirdly humanoid features and they're kind of reptilian as well and they don't look like they should be alive is part of the thing because they aren't supposed to be alive uh the movie explicitly states that they have just been stealing life this whole time that they should not have survived this long there is a a thread through designing the skexies that comes up a lot reading about this that they were based they wanted to base them off the seven deadly sins but then there were 10 of them in the movie so they kind of abandoned that partway through designing them but you can see elements of it in a number of the characters for sure mm-hmm. yeah, which that's is really interesting an element of the plot that we kind of skipped over is that the the Skeksis have been alive for this thousand years because they are using the magic of the crystal to steal life from in part just like from the planet by like absorbing the rays from the suns and also from individual creatures by using reflected light from the dark crystal to drain their life essence and then give it to their emperor to prolong his youth yeah it's dark it's a dark moment when you see that happening dark stuff sorry the mystics and the skeksis are at the end revealed to be two parts of the same whole species essentially and the skexies very much embody both the evil side but also a much more physical side they are very dependent on taking and they are degrading physically in a way that the mystics aren't when we see a skexis die at the beginning of the movie we see the emperor die and then there's a whole conflict for power after the skexis emperors die have a competition between the chamberlain and what I think is supposed to be the head of the military, uh, as to who's going to be the new emperor. The Chamberlain is a simpering, snivelly, kind of like... He's very preening. Under, preening, underhanded kind of guy, and yeah. the head of the military is exactly what you'd expect. Chamberlain wants the position. He makes this very consistent hmm noise throughout the movie that I think is like the only bit of Frank Oz vocals that get through the movie is his hmm which he does, like, all the time, and it immediately makes you hate him, but also, like, recognize him as, like, an individual character and be interested in him, which is super effective storytelling. So they challenge each other for the throne, and the way in which they do this is a trial by stone! Where they get big swords, and they have a... Really cool swords! They're dope swords! And a stone obelisk, and whoever can cut the largest gash into the stone wins the trial. And the military guy literally chops it in half. He cuts the top off of it. They punish the Chamberlain at that point for trying to be the emperor, I guess, like betraying the community essentially, and mm-hmm. by ripping all of all of his fancy clothes. Yeah. And but sending him into the wastes, essentially, because the castle they live in is just surrounded by a dead desert. Yeah, he gets exiled. There's this good, subtle way that they get across the fact that the um, 
the material goods that the Skeksis surround themselves with are these like icons of status, and so they like strip all of that away and send him off into the wasteland. Yeah, they live in a big castle and they have shiny things. They're very aristocracy coded, which makes this movie like very anti-rich, which is nice. Yeah, and you you actually see the Skeksis puppet without any of the robes on, and they are like gross, emaciated. They have like cancerous bones. And like, with, like distended bellies and these like withered vestigial arms, which is interesting because the mystics have four fully functioning arms, and you only ever really see two arms on the Skeksis. Except for in that sequence. Except for in that sequence. The Emperor of the Skeksis crumbles into ash in front of them, like disintegrates and is still there physically, but has, like, fallen into himself. It's kind of disgusting. Whereas when we see the wisest of the mystics pass away at the same time, presumably, they just turn into light. The mystics are ephemeral. They're barely physical at all. They are... They've got these almost Buddhist traditions to them, where they're very of the moment, it seems like, and they just kind of go along until they have their fated moment where they have to go back to the castle. And they're more reptilian looking the mystics are probably the least easy to describe comparing them to anything because they don't mm-hmm. really look like anything yeah they're they've they're, got four arms their features are much more soft and much more rounded and they move very low to the ground kind of lumbering in a way that was incredibly difficult for the performers yeah jim henson would get in some of these rigs to like test them out and show people how they worked and he apparently could only hold the position required to perform in the mystic costume for about five to ten seconds before it got too much so they had a lot of contortionists and acrobats and mimes and just like it's apparently general circus folk working on this movie like hardcore dancers people who could do things with their body that nobody else could Mm mm-hmm there are some highly trained people in weird fields working on this movie. So that's the general dichotomy between the Skeksis and the Mystics, which is, I think, mm-hmm. one of the interesting thematic elements. Well, you were talking about the fact that this movie feels thematically unique. What's interesting about that is that apparently before... I don't know if it was before like conceiving of the original concept for this movie, but like uh, before production, at least, Jim Henson read the Seth material which I don't know if you're familiar with this. But no. The Seth material is one of the cornerstone texts of New Age mysticism. It is a collection of material that was channeled to a New Age mystic in like starting in like the late 60s, I think, and all the way up until like into the early 80s. And it was finally like all collected and published. But it, it was a lot of the ideas that are associated with New Age now were established through this material that was apparently dictated to this woman by some discarnate entity that called itself Seth. Okay, so she was on some kind of mixture of LSD, (laughs) probably. Jim Henson said he didn't understand the book, but he thought it was for everyone to understand or not understand in their own way, and still found it very inspiring, and it clearly weighed on his thoughts a lot, because he asked the other creative heads on the movie to read it before production as well. That's really interesting. It is. And, like, one of the things that, like, I read kind of the Cliff's notes of it just to see what, if anything, really made it into the Dark Crystal. And there's this constant reiteration on the idea that the material world is manifested from consciousness. 
And so you have this dichotomy between the Skeksis and the mystics in the movie, where one of them seems to very much embody the spiritual, and one seems to very much embody the material. Yes, one of the major sequences with the Skeksis is a feast, which is a very common thing in fairy tales and folklore to show both villainy and gluttony and just raw physicality. I compared it when we were watching it the first time to uh, Pan's Labyrinth with the Pale Man. It's got some reminiscent vibes to that, and uh, the scene in Lord of the Rings where Denethor is just like chowing down while he sends his son to be murdered. It's it's a very common like in fairy tales and legends to do that kind of imagery. Not that food is bad because there's also a scene where uh, the podlings are having a feast and that's much more jovial and familial and there's this sense of community there whereas the Skeksis are just at the same table but isolated and clearly cruel and wasteful and eating live rats which is i mean they're not rats they're like puff balls that seem to be able to move i call them rats because that seems like what they are mm-hmm. in the ecosystem and he just eats them live the cut that leads us into this scene is directly from the large gentle swamp creatures that are encountered by our main characters it cuts from this animal with its babies to the same creature, but roasted on a platter, being and served to the Skeksis. It's noted, the size-wise, clearly a baby. Oh, yes. It's clearly an infant, because the large ones are, like, twice the size of a gelfling, and the Skeksis are around that same size. A little bit taller, but... The sizes are also really impossible to judge in this, because you have no idea what human size is in this universe, because there are no humans. So we're just eyeballing it, basically, on what we think the costume sizes are. Uh, But the point I was trying to make here with the the physical nature of it is that there's this very raw physicality to the Skeksis, where the mystics, I actually don't think we ever see them eat. We only ever see them sing and walk and, like, pray and do, like, spiritual things, and they don't seem to require anything. No, they spend most of the movie going on this long journey from the valley that they live in to the castle so that they can be at the crystal when the convergence happens, and they don't seem to have taken any supplies with them. No, they just keep walking. It's chill. It's also notable that when the wisest of the mystics dies... They, like, gather all of his physical belongings, and they just disappear with him yeah, when they, he dies. The thing that they reminded me of, and this is why initially my brain got so caught on this physical-spiritual connection thing, is the mystics are essentially the Skeksis demons. So, for those of you who are not in the know, in the His Dark Materials series, uh, which is the Golden Compass and stuff, which, read those, they're really good if you haven't gotten around to it, and the TV series is coming out soon, which I'm sure is going to be great. Every human being has a daemon, which is basically a physical manifestation of their soul in the form of an animal. Now, it's not a one-to-one parallel, clearly, but there's a lot of similarities between them, especially in death, because when humans die in His Dark Materials, it's normal human death. You just die, and your body is there, and you are gone. But your daemon immediately disintegrates into particles. And I just, as soon as I made that connection, it seemed clear that they were going for a similar spirit-body split in this uh, thing. Although His Dark Materials was written significantly later. Or not significantly later, but in the next couple decades. Oh, they're also, the mystics are supposedly natural wizards, where the Skeksis are, like, manipulating the natural world and the crystal to falsely continue life. The mystics just flow with nature, which reminds me 
how Kira deals with things too. She's not necessarily magic, but there's a much more natural way to the way she interacts with the world. And Jen as well, although Jen doesn't seem to have anything in the way of power, he just kind of is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Skeksis very much consume and manipulate and destroy primarily. In, in They have these... Um, crab-like guards that they are soldiers that they send out to the do Gartham. their bidding the gartham uh which it's not explained in the movie itself but in in concept the idea was that they were actually like created by the uh skexies to be these soldiers which does come across at least somewhat in the movie in that as soon as the skexies are defeated they just crumble mm-hmm. the gartham aren't there's nothing inside of them they're just a shell. Yeah. Uh, they're also intimidating as I'll get out. But I think we should try to switch base now and talk about uh, Jen and Kira, the actual main characters. And then we can talk about other side characters, uh, mostly Akram, who is super awesome. Uh, Agra. Agra, who is awesome. But yes. uh, Jen kind of is entirely unrelatable until he meets other people. <laughs> Jen is very close to being a... Not a difficult character to like, but bland in the way that a lot of protagonists in these types of stories tend to be. But he's not. He gets close at the beginning, but by the time you get to him actually interacting with some of these other characters, he does start to show a lot more of a personality. Yeah, there's uh, some voiceover narration. Not narration. uh, He gives voiceover thoughts on occasion, and I feel like if they'd read a couple more of those early in the movie, you would have got along with him a little bit better. But at the beginning of the movie, he's mostly just confused and sad, which is fair, because his dad basically just died and he's going on a mission that he doesn't understand on like four sentences of information so like fair jen being confused and not knowing what's going on is totally viable character building right there but it doesn't do much to like acquaint you with him as a person and also the designs in this movie are beautiful the puppet works incredible when you first see jen he's creepy it takes a little while to adjust to it. Yeah. His, and Kira doesn't give that same effect, which is weird. So it's not Gelfling design in general. It's Jen in particular. That's just, it just takes a little bit. It's not that he's entirely creepy throughout the whole thing. He just initially triggers some uncanny valiness that gets better basically as soon as he starts communicating with other characters regularly, which is the same time you start associating with him as a person. Mm-hmm. It might have to do with the fact that he is the closest puppet that there is in the movie to just a straight-up normal human, and he is surrounded by things that look distinctly not human. They talk about this in the behind-the-scenes footage as they wanted him to be a bridging character, they wanted the Geflinks to be as close to human as anything in the movie so that people would associate to the world through them, and I think that both works in their favor and against them. I don't know if maybe the characters would have been more approachable if they'd been slightly less human. I think Kira hits a really good balance here. Something about Jen is just a little bit not there for me. And maybe someone else's opinion varies. It definitely falls into the uncanny valley a little bit, which is the phenomenon where the closer to something gets to being human, the more you like it up till a point where it gets upsetting to look at so pixar baby versus the baby in twilight or the incredibles versus the characters in those creepy mocap movies from the early 2000s or the spirits within ben of fantasy movie right there's a point where you're getting too close to human and your brain is just like there's something wrong with that it's not a human being but it looks really close so it's probably like a dead person or a sick person jen 
you expect his face to be able to move a little more than it can, I think is part of it. His eyes move a lot, and his mouth moves a little bit, but there's a lot of dead space between, because he's a puppet. Yeah, there's a little bit of stiffness to the Gelfling puppets that isn't quite there with some of the other ones, and that might just be because of the way they're performed. I don't know exactly, but... Yeah, they're not the same, like, hand puppet. You Mm -hmm. know how with Kermit, his whole face can move because there's just a hand under there? Yeah. There's clearly much more structure to a Gelfling face that makes it so if you moved your hand underneath his head, it wouldn't do that. Which is, overall, this is a nitpick, honestly, because yeah. once you get more than five minutes in with the character, you don't care anymore. But mm-hmm. especially the first shot where he's naked by a river playing a pipe. I say that first shot is fine because he's not saying or doing anything significant. You're just kind of looking at him. But when he comes running into the village to talk with his master, you're like, oh, this has taken me a little while to get used to. Again, this is a very minor point. Once Jen actually starts talking to people and you get to know him, he is kind of hapless and clueless, but clearly sweethearted and trying his best and a little bit snarky at times. He's not mean, but he likes to joke about situations. His first reaction seems to be, oh well, (laughs) make some kind of snappy joke about it and try to move on, which seems very Jim Henson to me. Yeah. Which is notable. Jen is the one character, is mm -hmm. the main character uh, performed by Jen. Yes. I came across some comments from some of the people behind the scenes that Jen was the manifestation of Jim Henson in the movie. Like, that was very much the way that a lot of people saw it on set. Yeah, and you can get that vibe, especially when he, his inner monologue just drops into, like, kind of making sarcastic comments about the things around him. Like, he's looking for Akra, and he just doesn't know what's going on, because nobody really told him anything. He's like, who even is this person? Maybe it's these weird crabs. What is the point of what I'm doing? And he seems like he's about to spiral into an existential crisis, but then he gets, like, caught up in some vines and he's not worried about it anymore. He's very practical in that way. Uh, so Jen takes this journey, initially leaving his home and just taking a walk through some really nice scenery like you do when you're a protagonist from a hero's journey story. You go on a long walk and then you meet uh, the mystical woman who can foresee the future, which is another very stock character, but done in a very good way in this movie. Akra. You should mm-hmm. talk about Akra. Okay. I okay. keep mispronouncing the name. Yes. I know there's a single pronunciation, it's, but I'm going to screw these up. I'm sorry. It's, it's Agra. A-U-G-H-R-A. Yeah, it's not Okra. I'm Agra. sorry. I, I also had to... It, it's not pronounced super consistently in the movie. It's a little bit hard to tell what it's supposed to be, but like when you That's see like, it spelled out, it makes sense. One of the other things in the movie is that a lot of the voice acting was done after the fact because the original draft of the movie, nobody spoke English except for the Gelflings. So the way things are said are a little bit weird, and because so many of the words are made up and completely new, pronunciation is in, uh, like uneven, and also people have fantasy accents that mean they pronounce things differently, so this isn't just me. The movie doesn't make it easy. In the movie, Agra is this wise old woman kind of character. She's this eccentric uh, mystic who lives on the top of a mountain, and she has this massive model of the solar system, essentially, that she uses to read the cosmos. Yes, she is aesthetically like a short humanoid goblin woman. Mm-hmm. Ram's horns and, well, what looks like three eyes, but is actually two eye holes and one spot on her eye. 
And she only actually has one eyeball that she can literally take out of her head and put other places, including the other slots in her eyes. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's clearly inspired by the Greek concept of the fates in that respect. uh, The third eye clearly has a lot of psychic connotations in a lot of different cultures, but especially like Asian mysticism. The character is simultaneously very clearly inspired by a lot of different like old woman fortune teller tropes but not at all what you would expect by putting all of these together. As much as she should be, like, a mysterious, like, coy old woman, she's, like, really in your face. Yeah, she is, like, brash and upfront and snarky. She's so sarcastic. And she doesn't actually seem to... Like, she cares, obviously, by her actions, but... She's also got that kind of new agey vibe, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't really, like, I know the future, but I don't really know what it means, so, like, maybe everything's gonna sit on fire and I'm gonna die, but, like, maybe that's gonna be okay, I don't know. Anyways, here's a bunch of crystals, and she throws Mm -hmm. them on the ground. The character that she reminds me most of is the way that Yoda portrays himself to Luke when they first meet in Empire Strikes Back. Which is appropriate because this is one of the main characters that is uh, performed by Frank Oz. Yes, originally voiced by Frank Oz as well, but dubbed over by a woman, which I think was a good choice. Frank Oz's female voice can be really good. I like me some Miss Piggy, don't get me wrong. But I think to actually get the femininity of this character across, you needed a woman because you can tell the character design is feminine. Mostly via the fact that there's a woman voicing it. Like, there are certainly feminine aspects to the character design. She's got, like, titties, but not, like, curvy, sexy titties, like, goat breasts. They're not in the spot you would expect them to be, and and you can only kind of see the nipples on occasion. It's not like... She's very lumpy, mm-hmm. but not curvy. She, yeah. Again, nothing is humanoid, and nothing is recognizable in this universe, so you kind of need secondary characteristics like the voice to really help on that and i feel like if it had been frank oz's voice based on the footage we saw it would have come off a lot more drag queeny which is excellent for miss piggy but would have felt weird for this character yeah they had uh, her lines dubbed over by billy whitelaw who the the performance is fantastic she does a, an amazing job there's a lot of really interesting conceptual stuff behind agra's character the character was conceived as this is the physical being that thra created to like embody itself in its own world and to that end it was she was designed to have like a combination of masculine and feminine features and the idea in her like backstory is that the reason she doesn't have a right eye is because that was the eye through which she watched the first convergence and it burned out harsh so she only has the one eye left so yeah it doesn't feel like she's natural it only has one eye you can tell that from the aesthetics but there's yeah so much thought yeah. into every element of these characters as is in the movie i love her she's great mm-hmm. she's one of my favorite she, things. she gets mistakenly captured by the gartham at one point when they're sent off to capture jen because gelfling will and the Skeksis, and so they get scared and they send off their Gartham. Uh, but they accidentally bring back Agra instead, and she comes out of this burlap sack and just lays into the Skeksis. And it's super clear from their body language that they are actively afraid of her, even though she isn't really much of a threat. Oh, she's terrifying. I would yeah. never mess with Agra. <laughs> And she like, walks up to their banquet table and just starts, like, taking things and, like, telling them off. 
And it's so funny. It does make sense that she is supposed to be like a manifestation of the core of the of the world. Yeah. Uh, this reminds me of Taz, uh, the Adventure Zone's most recent arc, Amnesty, has like the heart of the world of Sylvain is like represented by a person sometimes. Uh, and it's another like mystical world thing. And I'm like, yeah, if you had like this crazy fantasy world and that was you, you'd have to be a tough bitch. I like it. And I like my mystical women to like talk back, I guess, is fun. Yeah, Jen goes from the Valley of the Mystics through some nice scenery to the place where Ogre lives. After Ogre like captures women with a bunch of vines, she like brings him in and explains the Great Convergence, which is the planet has three suns. Three suns are going to eclipse each other. Yeah. That... Uh, she was around last time this mm-hmm. happened, more than a thousand years ago. Hasn't Which... aged a day. That was when the crystal first split. Also, the, the reason that it's so important that they heal the crystal before the convergence is because the energy of the three suns combined will make the Skeksis actually immortal. Yeah, that, That's the ticking clock. Is they, that will... they are preparing for this final ceremony of the sun. It is explained that they will basically take over like darkness will rule the world if they don't fix this now yeah uh and they couldn't have fixed it before because reasons Uh, also because you need the magical sun energy to fix the crystal is implied and the mystics don't do anything on their own they just let other people do things and that is actually a part of their character like they they are they they are passive beings they do not really act in the world they set other forces at work to act on their behalf like the Homestuck God Tier system. There's <laughs> active classes and passive classes. Um, the Mystics are, are Muses and the Skeksis are Lords. Anyways, Jen goes to Agra. He is given like a box full of crystal shards to try and sort out. And he figures out which of the ones is the actual shard by playing his pipe at the same frequency that the Mystics sing, mm-hmm. which he was clearly raised doing which implies a nice connection between music and magic in this universe that i like that is continued on it's a very last crusade style test that agra gives him where she's here's a box full of crystals where she drops the line you have much to learn and no time yeah jen is not his primary trait it's not wisdom or intelligence he is just he's capable he's not stupid he just doesn't know what's going on so Jen figures out the crystal, uh, and then immediately the Kartham attack and burn down Agra's house, and he barely gets away. He barely gets away because Agra does basically stand in the way of the Kartham while he, like, shimmies through the roof on the <laughs> planetarium. And she's angry, as we discussed. She gives the sticks he's talking to. Jen runs, and then he's like, wait a second, I have this rock. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with the rock. Because at this point, nobody's told him what to do with the freaking rock that he has. Oh, and he, like, stabs the beetles with it a couple times, which freaks the mystics out, which is interesting. I guess they're very connected to the crystal, is the implication. Anytime stabs things with the crystal, mm-hmm. we get a reaction shot to them, basically. It's implied uh, that there's energy given off when he attacks people with the crystal. Which, again, he doesn't do a lot, because it's not a good weapon. Jin meets up with Agra, and then leaves, and is essentially very confused about what to do next. Conveniently, at this point, he's wandering through this very pretty swamp that we get these beautiful shots of all of the different plant life and animal life and animal plant life because they did a lot of mixing of those two things, which was really interesting, aesthetically speaking. And he's basically about to, like, throw in the towel because he doesn't have any idea what he's supposed to be doing when he notices something in the shadows around him and gets jump-scared by a 
roly dog that's mostly mouth. This is the only puppet in the movie that does not have expressionable eyes. It just has, like, eyes set into its face that don't move. I think it's got eyebrows. I think it has eyebrows. It has eyebrows that move. Its name is Fizzgig. Yes, which is also the name of the species, apparently. Okay, it's just Whatever. It's a Fizzgig. Uh, it is literally it's like... A Fizzgig named Fizzgig. It is a ball of fur, like a tribble, kind of, with four tiny little feet. You don't really see legs, they have feet. And like a scruffy tail, angry eyebrows, tiny little beady eyes, and its entire face is a mouth. It's like Pac-Man. And it opens its mouth, and it's got two sets of teeth. So it's like I like front teeth and then inner shark teeth. Kind of terrifying and adorable at the same time. And this is the only moment I noticed when we were in theaters that actually frightened a child was you get jump scared by this thing and I heard a kid scream. Yeah. <laughs> Which is fair. It's a scary <laughs> moment. Uh, this also freaks out Jen and he falls into a mud puddle and his thought is just, ah, oh, right in the mud. Like, he's not actually concerned because this thing is, like, the size of a soccer ball. Yeah. But he's like, aw, this is my only tunic. Uh, and then out of the shadows comes Kira, the other Gelfling. Yes, Kira goes to help him out of the swamp, and when they clasp hands, they dream fast, which is a thing that Gelflings can do that Jen didn't know about because she was not raised by Gelflings. But essentially, it's kind of Pacific Rim neural drift style. Where or when uh, they the clasp... Vulcans can do this too. Yeah, the Vulcan uh, mind, mind meld is another similar thing where when they clasp hands, they essentially share their memories and emotions with each other. So when they. Effective backstory right when there. When they grasp hands, you get this uh, quick backstory of what happened to each of them as children and how they ended up where they ended up. Also, Jen is mostly just like, oh, another Gelflick! That's cool! I thought I was the only one! And Kira's like, oh, cool, another Gelflick! I thought I was the only one! Like, neither of them are deeply, like, shocked about this, but Mm -hmm. they're also, like, clearly pretty happy that they're not alone in the world. They find Melt, essentially they dream fast. You discover Kira was raised in, at least until she was, like, like, I don't know what the Gelfling equivalent or the two or three or whatever. She remembers other Gelflings. She remembers her first memory is her mother and her village, like her village being burned down. Her mother hides her in a hollow tree. To protect her, which is just like really tragic and sad mm-hmm. and like very war movie. Uh, the flashback sequences for Kira's side also vaguely reminded me of Kung Fu Panda 2, where oh, yeah. Poe has all of these flashbacks to when his village was burned down by a crazy genocidal bird who wanted to kill all of his species because of a prophecy that said pandas would defeat him. Which makes me think, maybe the people who wrote Kung Fu Panda 2 saw in like the darkest so that's a lot of specific details. I mean, but the, I mean, it's a very biblical story. Yeah, it's a very biblical thing. I just, I think in general, a thing that. But also, Poe gets someone, put away by his mother while things are burning mm-hmm. down here. It's very similar. If someone visually. with enough power learns that someone from a specific group is probably going to like unseat their power, they will attempt to destroy that group. Yeah, also similar. Prince of Egypt, you know, yeah. Moses, there's a lot of things. The Pharaoh did it to the Israelites in the story of Moses. King Herod did it to the Israelites Israelites again again in learning that one of them was going to become the king. Yeah, it's a common thing. Yeah. And it's a common thing in other mythologies as well. We're coming at this from a Christian perspective because that's 
the mythology we're most familiar with. I'm sure there's elements of it in other stories. I know Hera tries to murder a lot of babies in Greek mythology, but that's mostly just because they're Zeus's. <laughs> Fun. I mean, Kronos tries to eat all of his children. Yeah, true. He does eat a lot of babies. He doesn't eat all of the babies, though. No, Zeus gets away. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Kira is Zeus. That's what we're gonna go with now. <laughs> her dad didn't eat her, thankfully. <laughs> Whereas Jen's first memory is being found by the mystics. So Jen doesn't remember anybody. He doesn't mm-hmm. know anything about his parents. Whereas. Kira remembers her mother and is clearly attached to that memory, but that's about all she remembers. And then Kira is raised by the podlings, and Jen is raised by the mystics. And they both clearly had pretty nice childhoods, actually. They were raised by loving families, even if they weren't gelfling families. Yeah, there's this emphasis in the memory sequence on the, the kindness that they were shown, uh, mm-hmm. that they were raised with, which is uh, The podlings very... love Kira. It is so yeah. good. You get to see the podlings, and like she is their daughter and they adore her and the mystics clearly love jen mm-hmm. in their like weird mystic way the emphasis on kindness is a very jim henson thing minor point here the flashback sequences do show like child versions of the characters baby gelflings are not as cute as you would expect <laughs> you think they'd be cuter they're not they're kind of ugly they're not badly designed they're just kind of ugly they look like goblins uh the like child ones are slightly cuter they're kind of so ugly they're cute they look a lot like cabbage patch kids anyways it's like fade cross fades of their memories and they're both like narrating over them and it's really adorable because you get all of their like how they were raised and you learn how kira learned the ways of nature and how jen learned the ways of science and magic which is another really interesting dichotomy jen and kira are also a like hair not as dramatically dichotomized as the skexis and the mystics obviously but they are two parts of the same whole in a similar way where jen is clearly the masculine but he also has the like scientific side of things and he's more reserved in a lot of ways whereas kira is more feminine and more actiony and tied to nature more distinctly which is interesting, but they make a good pair as a result. Yeah, they complement one another. Yes. So after Jen gets out of the mud puddle, which does eventually happen after this memory sequence. He almost sinks and then Kira calls a creature to lift him out of the mud. Yes. And then Kira says that the Skeksis are always watching, so they have to keep on the move. After which they go on a really nice boat ride. Which was a very difficult scene to shoot, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why Jim Henson was so insistent on putting puppets near large bodies of water, because that's really difficult for everybody involved. People, like, almost drowned doing the Muppet movie, but he wanted to do it again for some reason. So there's a long boat sequence in this movie. Yep. Throughout these adventures, we get occasional glimpses of the crystal bats which are a creature that the Skeksis created with these artificial crystal lenses to magically show what they see to the dark crystal itself so that the Skeksis can, like, watch what's happening. Yeah, they're spies. Yeah. They six spy bats. So they see the Gelfling, and they're like, that's well, not good. Yeah, they see Jen at the beginning, and that like, yeah. sends out the Skartham originally. And then uh, we see a crystal bat for the first real time when Kira shoots one down from the sky with her sling. She has a sling. She never uses it again. Uh, she shoots down the bat, and then she's like, it probably didn't see us. We're fine. But it clearly sees them. The boat ride is really nice, though. 
It's just the two of them. She's singing and he's playing the pan flute. It's this nice moment of calm. And also Faz Gig is there, making his mm-hmm. weird little whimpery dog noises. Kira manages to get Jen all the way to her village, which is adorable. The podlings are adorable and I love them. What's really neat about the podlings is that when they were designing the language for the podlings, they combined a bunch of different sub-Croatian languages. So if you speak certain languages from the different regions, you can understand individual words here and there, but they're not constructed in a way that makes any sense. There's like three stages left of gibberish. must be a really fascinating experience watching as someone who speaks one of those languages, because it, it must sound so familiar but not. It does more than anything else feel languagey. It doesn't seem like they're just screaming random sounds. They are communicating clear points. Uh, anyways, the podlings are essentially like potato people. They, they yep. are based on potatoes. That is their original design aesthetic. Small humanoid critters about half the size of a gelfling. That, that they look like yeah. potatoes. I don't know what else to say. They're adorable. Oh. They just live in these little burrows and they're very cozy. They play music. It's it's very sweet. They're kind of hobbity, but like mm-hmm. less asshole-ish than hobbits. Because <laughs> hobbits are dicks for the most part. Most hobbits are kind of like uppity little jerks. Whereas the Podlings are clearly this fantastic communal society where nobody wants for anything and they play, like, jam bands every night and... Anyway, I love Podlings and if I had to choose a society with which to live in this world, I would choose the Podlings any day. So they have a cool party where Jen talks to Kira about how he has no idea what's going on and what to do with the crystal and Kira's, like, kind of knows a little bit more but doesn't really know that much more about what's going on. And then they have the moment where... It's clear that everybody kind of thinks they're dating, which is adorable. Uh, they get interrupted by a baby at one point, which is sweet. And then Jen gets pulled aside to, like, join in the band because he's got his pipe and Kira just kind of watches contemplatively. And you get this, like, real sense that, like, I don't know, he's joining the family and it's really sweet. Uh, and then the Gartham show up and kidnap a bunch of them, which we have seen before happens in her, like, memory meld earlier. Yes. So if you've been paying attention, also the slaves at the Skeksis castle are they don't look like podlings that we see but they are clearly the same base and we get explained later in the movie why they look like that Mm -hmm. but a bunch of the podlings get captured and then jen and kira just barely escape largely because uh the chamberlain shows up and stops the gartham from getting them the skexes only think there's one gelfling the chamberlain has seen that there's two doesn't bring that up to anybody nope uh, doesn't seem to care as long as he gets his status back, so he really is not that devoted to the survival of the Skeksis. He's just, like, wants his cool clothes back. Yeah, he wants what's his. Some pants. Actually, robes. Most of the time, the Skeksis are wearing full-length floor robes so that people can be under there. Mm-hmm. Um, we should describe what the Gartham look like, because they're neat. Oh, yes, the Gartham are these giant crab-like creatures, or lobster-like creatures is a more crab-like but they yeah they have these big they're kind of bug-like segmented carapaces and these little like glowing purple eyes that just shine out of like dark circles which seems very unnatural and it Mm -hmm. makes sense later when they just disintegrate purple is coated to the color of the dark crystal in this yeah uh also they have tentacles yeah they just have like tentacles which is 
Practically, it is to obscure the human legs that are sticking out of the bottom of these suits. Which is successful most of the time. Yeah, it's really not that noticeable. There is on occasions when they're moving fast mm-hmm. where you can kind of see the human legs, which are like fully black, so it doesn't look that weird. But usually it's pretty well obscured by the many, many insect legs and creepy tentacles. Yeah, these things are terrifying. Yeah, if you, as a small child, didn't like bugs... They're also, like, larger than the Skeksis. They're big. makes them really imposing, especially when they're next to the Gelfling puppets. And one of the things with the behind the scenes that we learned is that the suits were actually so heavy that people could only wear mm-hmm. them for, like, ten minutes at a time. Like, these are hard shell suits that were, they were, like, 70 pounds. They were fiberglass. Yeah. Uh, they had so... special racks built to put the, like, actors, the suits on when the actors took a break. Yeah, whenever they stopped shooting, the actors would go to these racks and get the shells, like, hooked on them so that they would be holding the weight. Yeah, these poor actors. The the people who did acted in this, kudos to all of them, because it was such a difficult job, I'm sure. Yeah. Every minute of yeah. it. Nothing was easy in this. We haven't even talked about Landstriders yet. We'll oh, get there. we're getting there really soon, actually. So, we were occasionally getting cuts to the Mystics on their really long trek with their shots that Nathan pointed out look exactly like shots framed from Lord of the Rings. Yes. I am like 90% sure that Peter Jackson is a fan of the Dark Crystal because some of the shots of the uh, Mystics are like, he cribbed directly those shots from this movie. I think those shots are also, however, referencing shots from things like Lorraine's of Arabia. That's also possible. Which, I mean, it's I guess it's a fairly popular composition. But it's a good composition, and yeah. it looks great. But one of the interesting things here is, so another time where Jen is, like, stabbing people with the crystal, which is not what you're supposed to be doing with that, Jen, but whatever. And he slashes the Chamberlain's arm, and we get a cut sideways to the Mystics, and a cut opens up on a Mystic's arm, and you see the Skexis have red blood and the Mystics have blue shiny blood, which is another thing that makes them feel very weird and ephemeral. It's like, that's not blood color. That doesn't look right. And it's like sparkly, which is weird. Clear sign up to this point for audience members who maybe didn't get the really obvious dualism with them earlier, that these things are very intimately connected, not just coincidentally connected, but they're mm-hmm. like physically connected in some way. It becomes more than just a thematic parallel. It becomes an actual connection. Mm-hmm. So Jen and Kira get away. They run into the woods and they fall asleep. And Jen wakes up missing his dead father figure and feeling really bad because he thinks it's his fault that the podlings got captured. And he like angrily throws the crystal away. And Kira's like, no, it's not your fault. It's okay. This happens all the time, actually. Uh, this happens a lot. It sucks. Uh, but it's okay. Don't be at sad. Um, and then they find some ruins. They find the ruins of a Gelfling home. Yes, or a, it seems like part of a Gelfling township. Yeah, sort. Uh, a, a Gelfling settlement of some kind. And this is an, el- uh, an area where I started to pick up on some really subtle and really interesting design elements in the clothing and the architecture of the Gelflings as it relates to the architecture in the castle where the crystal is housed. This repeating kind of trinity uh, design that shows up on, it's on Kira's dress, and it's on, uh, I think, the robes that the Grand Mystic is wearing. There's also, a subtler version of it on mm-hmm. the necktie, uh, or the tie for 
Jen's tunic is through yeah. uh, bars. Um, and I didn't really get until the very end of the movie what this was actually like derived from. Uh, but it's a really cool connecting element that, again, shows just how much thought was put into the way that these cultures and this history connect and the way that it all follows through thematically. It turns out that like all of these images are referential to the uh, convergence of the three suns in the castle of the crystal. Right above the crystal, there is this triangular window, and the suns all like enter this window from the three points of the triangle. It's also likely yeah. just referential to there's three suns on this planet. Triangles are probably gonna be yeah imagery that you get like a shape with three sides, a th- shape with three points. It's the ones that are specifically triangles with circles in the middle that most reference the convergence specifically. Yeah. But there's just lots of triangles mm-hmm. everywhere. It's a very triangular art system in this place. So they find this ruin. Uh, Kira like gravitates towards a throne that seems to have existed, implying that this was probably like a higher level like part of the society. Mm-hmm. And Jen finds the prophecy, which has been referenced already at this point by Elgra. Uh, she said the words of it earlier, but it's really hit home here, this prophecy the Jen is following. And he can read, he which says, Kira can't read and doesn't even know what language is, clearly. Uh, she doesn't know what letters are. And yeah. uh, Jen describes them in what might be my favorite way to describe writing that I've ever heard, which is she asks him what letters are, and he says they are words that stay, Mm -hmm. which is just a great line. It's a great way of describing language. I mean, written language specifically. So uh, there's also like hieroglyphic carvings and stuff. It's really cool wall that they built for this. He reads off the prophecy, which I can't remember. I don't remember the actual words to it, but uh, basically it explains that he needs that the dark crystal or the crystal needs to be restored. Kira realizes that the shard which she found that he threw away is a shard of the dark crystal and that the prophecy is referring to them placing this piece back into the crystal and making it whole. But Kira is really on board for it because she wants to stop the Skeksis. Jen mm-hmm. actually doesn't have as much motivating factor to do anything in this movie besides his dying father told him to do the thing, but he's been so sheltered his whole life. He probably doesn't really understand until the podling capture how bad the outside world has gotten. And Kira, however, has been experiencing this. She remembers her parents burning to death. She wants to scuff the Skeksis real bad. At this point, Skeksis shows up. Yes, the Chamberlain has followed them into the ruins, and he is trying to convince them that he wants to bring them peacefully to the castle, and that the Gelflings and the Skeksis can live in peace. Kira's not buying this. Jane's kind of an idiot, and kind of is. But Kira convinces him to run away, so they do. Thank goodness for Kira, a competent woman. And is this where they summon the Landstriders? Uh, well, yeah, first they get away, and then they're like, well, we should go to the castle, I guess. Uh, where is that? And Kira's like, I know where it is, and summons the Landstriders. So, the Landstriders... Are amazing. Are amazing. This is one of the coolest creature designs in the movie, and it all came about when somebody who worked on the movie... It was one of the mimes. Yeah, it was one of the mimes, one of the performers 
was also a stilt walker. And he just brought his stilts to set one day. He just brought his ten foot stilts to work to show off to his co-workers. Because he's a mime. And Jim and Brian were there and they were like, wait a minute. Those are cool. Can you walk on four of those? <laughs> so they got this rig with four stilts that he that the stilt walkers could stand on on four legs. Which I thought looked uncomfortable until and... I saw what the mystics were doing. And <laughs> Oh yeah. Land walkers, if you know how to walk on stilts, I'm sure it's not that So horrible. they're <laughs> balanced on four stilts, like on all fours, basically hunched over, and then rigged up on a wire so they don't fall over. Because and... they would die. And then it is they... stated in the behind the scenes footage, if <laughs> yeah. they were to fall, their necks would break. And then... Brian Froud designed this creature with these long, spindly legs, and they built this and skin kind of a frog face? that hangs over, that like stretches over the stilts, and then the performer on top with this, yeah, this weird animal head on the end of it. And they just made up this creature, and were like, this is cool. So that's how they get to the castle, is on these weird, spindly, running creatures called Landstriders. Uh, the part of the thing with them is that they're supposed to be really, really fast, which does get across much better in film version for some reason. I don't know what it was about seeing it on the big screen that made them seem faster. In the home version, mm-hmm. they didn't seem as fast. They were impressively cool in test footage, but yeah. they couldn't pull off that kind of thing on location. They do this really cool running leap on sound mm-hmm. stages that they didn't pull off on land because it would have killed people. They, and they, could, they had to move the smaller version right? of it. Yeah, because they, they, like in, in studio, they could run a track above them and connect the wire to that. But on set, because they were outdoors most of the time, they had to do it on a crane that was running, like moving along with them as they ran. You gotta appreciate how often they wanted to shoot on physical locations. Oh yeah, they they did a lot of on-location shooting for this, in addition to the extremely extensive set work. It's incredible, all around. Anyways, they summon these weird green critters, and they ride them all the way to the castle. Not really much conflict there, just a really cool scene where they're running on these neat horse things. Weird bounce. They look kind of uncomfortable to ride on, to be completely honest. Mm -hmm. They have, like, wings? A lot of things in this world have vestigial wings. Yeah. Like, everything was derived from birds at some point in time. So they get all the way to the castle. Which is guarded by Gartham. So that's not great. The Landstriders get in a knockdown dragout fight with the Gartham that looks a little bit awkward and like it was incredibly hard to shoot. Yeah, there are some really good moments in some where it's like, they're not making good, much There's contact here. Actually, one really pretty intense and very good, like, cool-looking moment where the Landstrider gets surrounded by Gartham and they, like, pull it to the ground and swarm it. Yeah, it's really upsetting to watch a little bit because these things seem like incredibly peaceful, nice critters that are just willing to help out for whatever reason, and yeah, they get murdered. With their mounts killed, uh, Jen and Kira... Oh, they threw get... some podlings also. Right, They catch right, up with yeah. the Gartham that caught the podlings and get them out of the cage. Which is why they get cornered, because mm-hmm. they're trying to help the podlings, which is good. Uh, but Kira takes Jen by the hand and jumps into a pit uh, on the edge of the like cliff where the castle is. Um, but it turns out that she has these butterfly-like wings that she can use to glide from the top of the cliff down to the bottom. Which Jen is very surprised by, because not 
having met another Gelfling, he did not realize that was a thing that they could do. That's which leads she... to some of the best line, one of the best exchanges in the movies, in my opinion. I don't have wings, Akira says. Of course you don't. You're a boy. So this is just a difference in physiology between the male and female Gelflings that he didn't know about. She says it so nonchalantly, and it's such yeah. a weird thing to say, but also clearly makes sense that <laughs> it's just a very good combination of sensations for an audience. Oh, it's very well, of good. Of course you don't. You're a boy. Right? Obviously, boys don't have wings. Yes. Anyways, Kira can glide. She can't fly, it doesn't seem like. No, it, in the, like, history of the Gelflings, as related in the, like, conceptual stuff the gelflings at one point could fly at least the, the females could fly and like over generations that ability has just kind of slowly waned it's just not that important yeah anyways they find a convenient monster shaped hole in the wall to get it's, into the castle it's like a culvert of some kind like there's water pouring out of it yeah, it's some kind of sewer system mm-hmm. essentially uh, but it leads into caverns underneath the castle so jen pushes on to go and uh, take the shard to the crystal kira does not like this place it's giving her mad bad vibes which is fair because it's you know bad news but she goes into and gets captured and jen gets crushed under a big pile of rocks when the chamberlain shows up yes the chamberlain has caught up with them still seems to be trying to convince them not to put up a fight but they do he causes a small like rock slide and jen gets pinned underneath it with fizzgig and uh, the Chamberlain captures Kira and takes her to the throne room as, like, basically a peace offering to the new emperor to re- get his status back. Which works! Yeah. Yeah, and uh, there's a minor argument between the person who wants to immediately kill Kira and the mad scientist guy who's like, we could get some good life vests out of that there, Gelfling. Yes, just a little bit prior to this intercut with their journey, we see the scene we talked about earlier where they Do we want to strap get into a toddling to a chair and uh, use the light from the dark crystal to drain his life essence. Which blanches his skin and like removes his pupils and all of his hair falls out and turns gray. And then he's a mind-washed slave. Yeah, and I- there's like dozens of these around the castle. It's basically, like, rapidly onset aging. Plus mind-washing. Yeah. So the podlings get the, 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 tortured, the, essentially. The technical work with this effect is amazing. Yeah, it's. I can't tell exactly how they're pulling this off. I think some of it might be stop-motion, but if it is, it's so smooth you honestly can't really tell. Because you see them fade away in front of your eyes, which is why it's so upsetting. It's probably partly, like some kind of special puppet rig built to do that. Yeah. To, like, contract like that. Either way, like, it looks amazing and is visceral and upsetting. Yes. So this is the thing they do so that they can drink the life essence of different critters to try to make themselves younger. Specifically to give to the Emperor to keep him young. Which didn't work great for the last guy who died at the beginning of the movie. Which we find out is because, uh... Like, back in the day, they used to use Gelflings, and for whatever reason, the life essence of a Gelfling is much more potent. They're just bigger. Uh, but they, because they genocided the Gelflings, they don't have any Gelflings left to use. 
so they've been using other creatures and in particular the podlings because they appear to be just plentiful uh but it doesn't work as well uh, we see the new emperor drink some of the podlings essence and uh it makes his body rejuvenate for a, for a little bit for like a minute or two and then it just all his skin sags and it all disappears so he's jazzed that we can get a Gelfling to get better juice out of. Okra is also there, being held captive. I feel like drinking her life essence would be dangerous because she's the planet, apparently, so it's a good thing they don't try that. Kira gets strapped down, Jen wakes up from his, like, rock coma because he did get hit by a bunch of rocks, and Okra and Jen manage to inspire Kira while her thick body is being drained to call on the other animals being caged in the area to free her and free themselves. Which works. The scientist gets overrun and shoved into a pit. If you still weren't sure what was up with the connection between the Skeksis and the Mystics, we see the Slave Master gets pushed into this shaft of fire and burns up. And then we get a cut to the Mystics just slowly walking towards the castle and one of them just like in a flash of fire just disappears. This shot is not supposed to be funny but it kind of is. Because <laughs> they all stop for a second, look where he used to be, and just keep walking. Because like there's nothing they can do. None of the mystics die physically. They don't seem to like get sick or hurt or anything. They just die whenever Skeksis does so this is presumably very normal to them. They get into a fight, and then one of them explodes. So, yeah, one of the mystics explodes, essentially. And then Kira gets out, and Kira and Jen both, alone, end up going to the same central room where the crystal is, while Akra just kind of bums around the laboratory. Like, in searching for each other, they both find themselves on this balcony overlooking the crystal chamber on opposite sides. Minutes from the convergence going down. Yes. All the Skeksis have gathered around the crystal to, like, gloat over their victory, not noticing the two separate Nelflings, like, two feet above them. So, yes, at this point... We are at the climax. This is the... The convergence is going down, we've got the crystal, we've got the shard, everything is set up to to either get completely screwed over or go solid. The Skeksis notice Kira, but they don't notice Jen, and they get freaked out. Um, and then they notice Jen. And then they notice Jen, because Jen cries out. Jen jumps dramatically from the balcony onto the crystal holding the shard, drops it on the ground. <laughs> Like a dummy. Uh, Askexis goes for it, almost knocks it into the pit, but... Fizzgig shows up Fizzgig to save the day. Fizzgig bites its hand. Kira grabs the shard. Fizzgig gets thrown in the pit. Fizzgig gets thrown in the pit. Don't worry. He's fine. He's okay. But it's really upsetting. <laughs> uh, and then as the ritual master, I think it is, one of the Skeksis, pulls out a knife and goes to stab Kira, she throws the shard back to Jen, who is sitting atop the crystal as she is stabbed. Jen is, by the way, willing to give up the crystal and, like, the world to save Kira. They give them the option of, like, if you just give us the shard, we'll let you go. It's fine. And Kira's like, no. And Jen's like, yeah, it's fine. Just don't hurt her. Jen is kind of a coward, honestly. And Kira's like, no, Jen. This is the whole idea here. I'm throwing you the shard. (laughs) She does, because Kira's the real hero of this movie. And I don't think the movie's trying to hide that. Jen is just kind of an act. Like, he does what he has to. He is 
kind of passive. He just does as flows where Kira makes decisions and mm-hmm. gets shit done. Uh, so Kira gets stabbed really dramatically, and Jen shoves the shard into the spot in the crystal where it used to be as the suns converge. Everything starts falling <laughs> apart. Yes, the Skeksis start trying to flee, but at this point the mystics walk slowly into the crystal chamber and calmly take up positions around the crystal. The entire castle is falling apart. The Karthum just disintegrate into different composite parts. The dark crystal lights up with a bright golden light. And the, the podlings all regrow their hair and re- yeah. like their faces pudge back up, and they look like uh, normal podlings again, which is a good little thing that we see so that we know that everything goes good. Uh, we also get a shortcut to Ogre, like, escaping the lab with saving Fizzgig from the pet, <laughs> yeah, which is important. Fizzgig has, like, bit onto the, like, apparatus at the bottom of the chamber that's used to reflect the light from the dark crystal. And she, she like, grabs a rake and, like, pulls him out of there. Yeah. Uh, the light from the crystal, which is now this bright golden light, shines through the mystic's eyes and freezes the Skeksis in their tracks as they're trying to flee. And they are compelled to, like, walk backwards to the mystics and in this bright light they are combined into one being that doesn't really look like either of them no this is a this is like my one design complaint here is that the skexies and the mystics are so well paralleled as physically being similar in a lot of ways but very distinct from one another but their combined form doesn't really reflect those similarities in any meaningful way. No. They've got kind of a humanoid, slightly goat face kind of thing going on with a very small mouth at the bottom. And they've got like normal human bodies. They've got two arms, legs. Long, They're just kind of skinny. Thin fingers. They're very slender. They They're... have these kind of antler things that rise up from behind their heads. Really fuzzy hair. Yeah. They look kind of like the gray alien stereotype. A little bit. They're not the most creative designs, but probably the most interesting thing about them visually is that they are composited into the shots in a translucent manner. Mm-hmm. So they are not there physically in the same way everything else is, which is probably the most interesting thing. It looks most similar as far as my projects are concerned to the way they do the Ghost of Christmas Past in the Christmas Carol. Not exactly the same, but similar. It's a less good effect. Yeah. While all of this is happening, Jen has jumped down from the crystal and is sadly cradling Kira's body. Yeah, that's all he's doing. Like, everybody's running around, the castle's falling apart, and he is just solemnly walking to her and holding her. Like, he doesn't care if he dies in, like, a castle collapse at this point. He just is really sad. And these beings... They, like, once all of the dust has settled and the castle, which is apparently this bright, translucent building made of pure light, is exposed, they thank Jen for, like, healing the crystal. Explain that they broke it and that that split them into two species. And say, well, we screwed up, but this crystal's, like, cool and powerful again, so, like, builds the world's in a better way also like hold mm-hmm. kira close to you you are one now like you're part of each other yeah and then kira comes back to life yep which is nice because i like kira and i didn't want her to be dead mm-hmm. and it would have been way too upsetting for a child if kira died yeah and that's basically the dark crystal yeah the last shot we get is the white replenished castle and the desert that used to surround it is now like a lush green valley and it seems like we've started a new era of not crappiness 
there's a lot of history we could go into with the final creatures at the end. Like a lot of very detailed conceptual stuff that isn't in the movie, but is clearly behind decisions they made. There's this very consistent sense from the way Ogre talks and the way the movie ends and the way that the whatever the combined creatures at the end talk that there's this idea of cycles in this world that basically every thousand years things change dramatically and that's not necessarily a good or bad thing on its own it's just a different way of being which is a different vibe that I get from the new mysticism style stuff that they talk about uh that's a common thought process in a lot of cultures though in a lot of religions is this concept of just massive change in different eras that isn't necessarily good or bad just a thing um Although this does seem to be a good era they're going into. So yeah, the idea behind these creatures, which in the backstory are referred to as the Urskeks. Okay. Which are split into the Uru and the Skeksis. Yeah, okay. No, I got um, that. They are an alien race from a different world that were exiled there by their people because of the darkness inside them that they were not doing a good job at controlling. Clearly not. So they were exiled to Thra, where because they were a much more advanced group, they took it on themselves to, like, try and advance the races that already existed on Thra, and as such were seen as this godlike species. I guess um, that explains their, like, alien-esque design, mm-hmm. then. But again, this isn't in yeah, the movie. This, this is in the like movie. This is extra canon material, yeah. essentially. I mean, I think some of it might be explored in some of the other stuff, like the comics and the novels, but as far as the movie is concerned, none of this is in the text. It's just behind it and then they were trying to use the crystal which is what sent them there in the first place it was what used to send them there they were trying to like use it in conjunction with the energy of the convergence that happens every thousand years to like find a way to get back to their home planet and they broke the dang thing and then they break it i mean it's unclear i in the movie, it seems like in the flashbacks that it is the Skeksis that break the crystal. There's, so it's I, an I, implication I, that they were split first, and then the Skeksis, in trying to like use the crystal, broke it. There's only one moment where you see anything that really implies that, and it's a flash in the shard of the crystal that Jen sees in yeah. a single moment of a Skeksis breaking the crystal. It's unclear if that's maybe... If that's, like, actual history or not, or if it's more metaphorical, but... Yeah. Something happens, the crystal breaks, they get split into... We don't really need the specifics because it's very mythological. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the general idea behind it. The Skeksis embody the, like, darker, more materialistic side of them, and the mystics the calmer and more gentle and spiritual side of them. Is there any other elements that you were really interested in? I think I've hit basically all of my notes. This movie is good. It's very good. This movie's almost too good to really talk about. You just kind of had to experience it. Yeah, please watch this movie. This movie is just something incredibly special. It is insane that this movie exists the way it does. Nothing like this gets to exist. In the special features that we watched preparing for this episode, there is a section where Jim Henson's talking about just the sheer difficulty of making this movie, and he says that it might be the hardest thing he's ever made, but the thing that he's the most proud of, and that is totally fair. Yeah, this is one of the most incredible 
films that I think exists. It has its flaws, sure, but it's too unique and too special to miss out on. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that it's getting so much attention now. And like seeing the amount of effort and thought that went into it, I definitely get the sense that if it was remotely possible in any way for this movie to look better than it does, it would. Yeah, there. The only thing that it is a problem is the compositing effects, is what I would say. And there was some challenges with the Landstriders. That is just a functional existence of how fast cranes can move. Yeah. If you could break the laws of physics, you would. And it's better for the fact that there is no CG. One hundred and ten percent. Nothing like this could exist now. And I know they're doing a lot of practical work with Age of Resistance, but there's going to be digital compositing. They're going to fix stuff up with CG, and that's okay. But there's really something to be said about the purest Mm -hmm. of practical existences in this movie has. There is something magical in just the texture and the physical, like, weight that everything in this movie has. This is a bit of a weird connection to make. But it also vaguely reminds me of Jupiter Ascending. It's like the good version of that. Because Jupiter Ascending also feels like this very small piece of a big world. And that the people working on it didn't get to explore it as much as they wanted to. And I don't think Jupiter Ascending is going to get the expanded graphic novel and television universe that I wanted to have. Because I'm one of the few people who likes that movie. But The Dark Crystal succeeds in having one perfect movie in this completely unique world where you can tell there's a huge history involved and succeeded in getting new material added into that world so good on the dark crystal i wish more things could pull off this ambitious attempt at a new world but they almost always fall apart jupiter sending didn't really work out for them riddick didn't really work out it's hard to build a mythology these days i mean it's always been hard but it's well worth the experience of something new and I think what makes the Dark Crystal work so well as like a mythic story is that they really did drill down and hone in on this one central idea that the entire story revolves around, mm-hmm. which is the, like that these beings were one and they were split, and that this story is about bringing them back together. It's about unity. Yes. And it's about bringing things back together again and starting fresh. Also, I don't think we mentioned this, they all reunite, and then they just disappear. They, like, zoom into space. Yep. They don't, like, stick around. They're just gone, leaving Jen and Kira alone in the castle to do whatever they like, I guess. So that's the Dark Crystal, a classic if there ever is one. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It may not be everybody's cup of tea, but it is... It's real good, y'all. It's real good, y'all, and you're not going to see anything else exactly like it. It's unique and special. It's probably the best thing we've talked about on this show, and I'm including the Muppet movie, which is a... It's different. It's really hard to compare those two things. Yeah, I mean, they're they're like, it's it's apples and, I don't know, steak? (laughs) It's apples and steak, y'all. You can't really compare them, but like... It's apples and a nice hot bath. It's that (laughs) far. Yeah. It's, It's just... It's a really, you have to experience it in order to understand anything that we're talking about. Like, we've just been gushing over this movie the whole time, but like it really is something incredibly unique. And keep your eyes peeled, because there are theaters playing it for, like, the upcoming series. Uh, yes. 
our local independent theater sh showed it. I know that the Cineplex line in Canada is showing it. I wouldn't be surprised if, I don't know what American theater lines are, but there's, there's people showing it. If you can see it in theaters, do it. It's worth it. You're not going to experience it better than that. But the Blu-ray we have, the 4K restoration, really solid work. The colors are all gorgeous. Everything is sharp without making things look artificial, which is a huge benefit of not using CG. Uh, nothing looks worse when you make it look better. Watch The Dark Crystal. If you don't, you're not my friend anymore. <laughs> That's a little bit harsh. Okay, fine. You can be my friend, but I'll just bug you about it a lot. Yeah, we love this movie. It's great. We definitely want to talk about some of the other stuff, aside from the Netflix series, although we're definitely going to talk about that, too. Yes, yeah, so we might get into the books or something. I will throw it all on my Christmas wish list and yeah. hope that somebody gets to me. <laughs> we'll see what we can find. But yeah, that's The Dark Crystal. Thanks for your patience in waiting for another episode. We've been... All over the just, place lately. Just, just a mess. Yeah, we had a real heck of a summer happen and, you know, getting back on the fall, basically. This is this was our summer break. We didn't intend to take it, but we did. Yeah. Uh, thank you. And thank you for listening. You can find us on Twitter at MuppetsPod. Uh, Nathan can be found on Twitter at BertNerdTram and Mackenzie can be found on Twitter at KenziePhoenix I know that's a hard word to spell I wish I had chosen something better uh, thank you all for listening we hope to get back to you soon not exactly sure what the next episode is going to be at this point but we'll figure something out uh, and we'll see you on the flip side of the rainbow Nathan mm -hmm. rainbow connection do you think we found it <sighs> I think we're close but not yet we have to go deeper. We have to go into another level of the dream. Okay. Well, someday we'll find it. Thank you for listening. Catch you on the flip side of the rainbow. are based on potatoes. The hobbits are based on English people. <laughs> the natural enemy of the potato. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, that was mean. To English people? Yes. Yeah, well, we're, I'm third generation English or whatever. Sorry to the, our English friends. We don't mean you. Anyway. We mean the aristocrats. Uh,